0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James
1: Altucher Show.
0: People dislike uncertainty, not just a little like bad weather or spoiled milk. No, people really dislike uncertainty. And, you know, and it's interesting because, for instance, take the stock market. Stock market's are great thermometer of uncertainty in the world. It's not oh, yeah. its not bad news or good news that makes the market go up or down. It's kind of the level of certainty or uncertainty. Oh, yeah. So for instance, right now, the market's down more than people think the economy will fall in part because we just don't know how long There's uncertainty about coronavirus, there's uncertainty about what level of restrictions are around, there's uncertainty how the economy is going to survive, there's uncertainty because many people, including some people listening to this, have lost their jobs, so that uncertainty just makes you completely feel powerless and retreat into yourself and you know, the market collapses and everything kind of collapses in life, the more uncertainty you have. And you have good case studies of examples of this in, in academic studies. How have you used, used this or how can we use this to persuade?
1: Yeah. And by the way, I mean, I experienced, I was, uh, you know, finishing up writing the book and I experienced this myself where I was on a flight. I was, uh, the flight was delayed. It kept getting delayed. I was worried I would miss a meeting. And what's the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing that can happen is I'll miss the meeting. Right? And so you would think anything is better than missing that meeting. right? Uh, anything is better than missing the meeting. But once I realized I was missing that meeting, I actually felt better. Right? I knew I was missing the meeting, but now I felt better because part of what I hated wasn't just the idea of missing the meeting. It's the uncertainty. Same with the stock market. right? It's not just that people are worried the market's going to go down. They don't know how far it's going to go down. It's uncertainty that, that gets us. But,
0: uh, you know, I'm just... Um, I'm now I'm, I'm blanking on the question I was about to ask. (laughs) So happy to have with me, uh, Jonah Berger once again on the podcast, Jonah just wrote a book, uh, called the catalyst, how to change anyone's mind, which is such probably the most important skill you can ever have to learn other than things like eating and breathing <laughs> and uh, cause we, we constantly have to persuade people. And, and, and we constantly have to move through life by not just caving into everyone else's decisions, but having our own agency and influence in the world as well. But I just want to mention Jonah is a, a professor at, at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. He also wrote the great books Invisible Influence and Contagious. Jonah, thank God your book wasn't titled Contagious this time, because it, it just as easily could have been.
1: You, you know, I don't know. Maybe that would have been better, right? A bunch of people would have gone looking for it and think about contagious ideas just as much as they think about viruses. But uh, it, is, it is a strange time uh, to be writing a book.
0: And, and both contagious, invisible influence and the catalyst, they all kind of work together. They're all, I mean, you don't have to buy one to, to, to read and, and get a lot of value from the others, but they're all kind of about this idea of, you know, how do you have ideas that through, through either persuasion or virality or whatever can have influence and impact. And again, so it gives you more agency in life than you would have otherwise. And by agency, I mean, you know, a little bit of control over the events around you.
1: Yeah, I think what's, what's different, um, though they, they are certainly related, they're all about human behavior. Contagious is really about you want something to catch on. Uh, you want people to share something through word of mouth. Um, Invisible Influence is really about social influence, kind of when do we do things others are doing, when do we avoid what others are doing. I think what this new book is about is, is a challenge that many of us have, which is we all have something uh, that we want to change, whether it's a, a boss's mind, whether it's an organization, whether it's a colleague's behavior. Um, if we're selling something, you know, it's a consumer's mind or a client's mind. Um, you know, uh, nonprofits want to change the world. We all have something that we want to change, but we often push and push and persuade and control, and it it often doesn't happen. And so what I think is interesting about this book is it tries to provide kind of a different approach uh, to changing minds, a way that's hopefully more effective.
0: And, you know, along the lines of what you were just saying, like, I sort of feel there's, there's three very important kind of scenarios where you want to change someone's mind. One is kind of a, 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 on a personal level. Uh, if you think your boss or your colleagues or your spouse or your kids, someone or your friends, someone personal to you is doing something you disagree with. You want to, um, change their mind and you don't want to mess that up. Like so many people mess that up by insisting on one argument and why don't they listen to the logic or whatever. And, and you provide a great framework instead of techniques for, for dealing with, resistance and, and also it's important to recognize when you might be wrong as well but uh it's important to have a skill set to to change people's minds who are close to you the second scenario is like in a presidential campaign where you want to put together a message that's changing you know thousands or millions of people uh and so you're not arguing with them one on one you have to kind of put this message that people uh, in a sense subscribe to and then kind of related to this is uh you know, businesses dealing with their customers or potential customers, how do you both change their behavior and also convince them to buy your product or service? So it's a little, it's like somewhere in between individual and the entire country. You know, it's <laughs> cause like sometimes you're dealing directly with customers and sometimes you're, you're dealing with changing behavior. Like, oh, you should eat this food instead of that food. Or, you know, they always talk about like, I have to educate, you know, Steve jobs didn't just, convince people to buy the iPhone. He had to kind of educate the market that you could listen to music on your phone and, and so on. But, um, but you have one framework to kind of handle all of these things. And, uh, I, I, oh, 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 first of all, I want to ask, how's it going? You're, you're surviving the coronavirus. I see.
1: <laughs> I, I am. Yes. Uh, hopefully you are as well. <laughs>
0: Did, did, the, did your publisher, so the book's called the catalyst again, the subtitles, how to change anyone's mind. Did your pub, your, it was published March 10th, kind of like right in the beginning of the total lockdown and closing of all the bookstores <laughs> in the country. Did your publisher think about delaying the release or what's, what was the discussions like with the publisher?
1: You know, this publisher has been relatively hands-off. Uh, we had a great piece come out uh, in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks before the book came out. Uh, it was actually sort of the the front piece of the weekend section. It got a little mention on the front page of the paper. And that was really helpful in sort of book, uh, boosting the book to the top couple hundred on Amazon uh, for a oh, while. Uh, but I think the coronavirus <laughs> soon, uh, soon took over the news. Um, uh, and so I don't know. We'll see. I mean, you see many things being canceled or not being launched. Um, so we may kind of relaunch it again in, in the fall. We'll see i think what i what i've been excited about is that the people that have read it um have certainly enjoyed it and spread the word and i think these tools are just as useful as you said whether we're trying to change our boss's mind or we're trying to get people to adopt social distancing and think about changing their health behaviors and so the toolkit's just as useful though there's certainly a lot of things grabbing the news
0: i think that's just i think that's just it here's here's my recommendation and take it for what it's worth which is zero uh you can after this crisis is over you know knocking on wood you you can have a whole addendum or ex, you know the coronavirus addendum, yes,
1: which is the coronavirus edition. Because
0: there's so many aspects where we have to convince people to stay indoors. You have to convince kids to social distance, and and there are strategies to convince kids. You can't just say kids, you'll get the disease if you go out because they don't care because they're invulnerable. But you know, so you switch the language a little bit. Like kids, you could kill older people if you go out. <laughs> that is a little bit more influential and uses your methodology to get there. And then there's, you know, issues about, you know, washing hands so much and, and, and so on. There's a lot of behavioral changes that are happening that that, society has to convince the individual members of. So I think there's, there's room to relaunch this is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting is the exact issues you mentioned are the same ones. We, we talk about the book, you know, anytime we think of, of changing minds, we think, Oh, if I just give them information, if I just tell you, here are the consequences of not social distancing, here's some information about why you should wash your hands. We kind of assume that people will do it. If we just give them information, they'll come around, but, but information often doesn't, doesn't work. I think, you know, a good way to think about it is. we think pushing works, right? To just give more reasons why someone should do something. And pushing often works in the physical world. If you have a chair that's in the, the middle of your office or your room and you want to move it, pushing it is a great way to get it to go uh, in, in a certain direction. Um, but people aren't like chairs in a particular way, which is when we push people, they don't just go in that direction. They often push back. Um, and so what good change agents have realized is that we can't just push people. We have to figure out, well, what are those obstacles or barriers that are getting in the way of change? And how can I get Rid of them almost kind of rather than selling, how can we get people to buy in, get them to persuade themselves? I, I think a good analogy is is almost like a, a parking brake of a car. You know, so you're parked on a hill, let's say, you get in the car, you want it to start, so you stick your key in the ignition, you turn it, you try to get it to go. If it doesn't go, you think, well I just need more gas. People aren't social distancing or washing their hands. You think if I just give them more information, they'll come along. Whereas really sometimes stepping on the gas doesn't get the car to go. You need to unlock that parking brake. And so without kind of identifying those often hidden obstacles. It's understanding why people don't change in the first place It's gonna be really hard to get them to come around
0: Well, and I, I want to go over your specific framework because there's great examples with each item um, and, and it's the um, It's the I think you call it the reduced framework, but it but I'll just say it's reactance endowment distance uncertainty corroborating evidence and um, uh, yeah, That's it and uh, I think there's great examples with with each one, but you uh, You know, I'm just, um, I'm now I'm, I'm blanking on the question I was about to ask, uh, well, you know, my main, my main issue always is it's great when there's like hundreds of academic studies that show all these different ideas, but I like to make sure that in practice, this works. Like I see a lot of (laughs) academic books that where there's all these great academic studies, but then when I actually and I'll think to myself, oh, I'm better. I've got a better mindset now. But then yeah. when it actually comes to using this in practice, it's like the Mike Tyson quote, you know, you have all the plans in the world and then it, it, it all goes Somebody to hits hell you in when the you're the face. But yeah, when you're in the face, and <laughs> yeah. so, but, and, but you know, like when you, let's say you're arguing with a friend or obviously this happens with a, a spouse, you say something and you want them to believe you. You don't want to switch strategies. And why is it often the initial inclination for people to push back? as opposed to listening to logic.
1: Yeah, so, so let's start with, as, as you said, kind of the first barrier in the framework, which is exactly what we're talking about, this sort of this pushing back. Um, and, and essentially, people like to feel like they have freedom and autonomy over their lives, right? Why did I make a certain choice? Why did I buy a certain product? Why did I go to a certain restaurant? I do it because I like it. I'm in control of my life. I make my decisions. The challenge is when someone else tries to get us to do something, and we think about doing that thing, now we're not sure whether I went to that restaurant because I like the food or whether someone else likes the food. I'm not sure whether I bought that product because I like it or someone else told me to. And so as a result, we get unhappy. We sort of have this pushback, this reactance where we're less likely to do it because we don't want to feel like someone else is controlling uh, our choice. In some sense, people often have what's basically an anti-persuasion radar system, almost like an anti-missile defense system that goes off when they feel like they're trying to be persuaded. Think about sort of like a spidey sense for persuasion where when you feel like someone's trying to push you, you either ignore what they're saying, you avoid doing what they're suggesting you to do, or even worse, you counter-argue. So think about this in our personal lives, right? When your spouse says, what do you want to do this weekend? And you say, oh, let's go to the movies. They often say, well, let me list the seven reasons why that's a bad idea, right? So like, oh, we went to the movies last week. Oh, it's nice outside. That that freedom and autonomy, that desire to feel like they're in control means they don't just want to, want to go along with, with what you suggested. And so the more we push people, they push back. And so to go back to the Mike Tyson quote, that's great. That's true. How do we solve that? And so in the book, I talk about a lot of ways Ways to give people that sense of freedom and autonomy to not try to persuade them but in some sense let them persuade themselves so one example of this that I talk about in the book is what I call guided choices I think this is a great one so you know uh, imagine you're talking to someone you're making a presentation in a meeting, and you're saying, "Hey, you know, this is what I think everybody should do. It's uh, this particular thing." Well, you're suggesting what you think is a good idea. The listeners are sitting there thinking about all the reasons wrong with what you're suggesting. And so, how do you avoid that? And one way to avoid that is by giving people choice. Rather than presenting one option, present multiple options. Not 17, but two or three potentially even. And notice what that does. It subtly shifts the role of the observer. Because now rather than sitting there thinking about all the reasons why they don't like what you suggested, instead they're sitting there going, well, which of these options do I like best? And because they're thinking that way, they're much more likely to choose one at the end of the day. If your spouse says, what do you want to do this weekend? And you say, we could go to the movies or we could go out for Japanese food. Now they're not going to counter argue. They're saying which one they like, which makes them more likely to choose one of the ones you suggested in the first place.
0: Although the flip side is they might want you to choose.
1: (laughs) Might want you to choose? Yeah. Oh, but you're happy. Sorry. But then what, what you're doing, by the way, is you're giving them the choice set, right? You're picking a set of options in some sense you're equally happy with. So people talk about this negotiation as well, right? If you have a new hire, the new hire always wants to negotiate. You know, I feel like I should ask for money, more this. And so what smart negotiators do is say, hey, great, I'll give you more money, but that means fewer days off or I'll give you more equity, but that means less money. You give them the trade-offs, and you, in some sense, give them two or three options you're equivalently happy with. So whichever one they choose, you're happy.
0: What, what's, uh, t- with the example of the presentation, can you give me uh, 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 some uh, specific way of giving
1: choices? Well, you could say, hey, you know, here are two courses of action. I think we should pursue one of these two courses of action. I either think we should adopt this particular course or this other type of course. Hey, you're presenting a solution, you're an advertising firm. Here are three directions I think you guys should choose between, here are three options I think are good for courses of action. Which do you guys think uh, are best? And again, it gives them some choice. Now they're feeling like, wait, I'm participating. I'm not being told what to do, but I'm getting a chance to decide but notice you're not giving them infinite choices. This even works with kids, right? Parenting books talk a lot about something similar. You know, if you tell your kids, eat your broccoli, or you tell your kids, put on their pants, and say, no, no, I don't want to. Say, okay, which do you want to put on first? Your shirt or your pants. You know, which do you want to eat first? Your broccoli or your chicken? And so it's giving people choice, but it's not complete choice. It's not 50 options, which feels overwhelming and they don't want to do anything. It's a small set of options that allows them to participate, but allows you to shape the journey.
0: And, and, and I, I'll, I'll add to this and you, and you kind of uh, allude to this as well and, and, and suggest this is that it's not like you're get totally, it's not like you're a hundred percent giving people free choice because there's ways to present things so that you're guiding, they'll, they'll, they'll think, and they, they do in fact have choice, but they'll think that they have more choice than they actually have. So, so for instance, um, real estate agents often use this trick, they'll show people two or three houses, one house is beautiful. The other two suck and they know it because they, they're <laughs> going to lead and they're going to say, oh, it's your choice. And then you're going to obviously choose the one they want you to to pick. And I'll, I'll tell you my own personal example where I, where I've been successfully doing this. If you give, when I give a, I do a lot of speaking and I also do a lot of performing, I do stand up comedy. I find it to be very successful. If I start off giving people a choice of two or three topics and and they, once they, if the audience themselves make a choice about what you're speaking about, they're kind of committed yes. to, to liking it more. Cause it's their choice.
1: Exactly. Right.
0: And, and but, but there's also availability bias. So ch- nine times out of 10, if I give them three choices, they'll pick the last one. So for sure. instance, in, st- in stand up comedy, I'll say, listen, um, clap for the one you want the most. I could make jokes about, uh, money, romance, or everything else in the world. I hate, and they I've never once had them pick anything but the everything else yes. that I hate
1: that I hate yes
0: so so you could kind of uh, not manipulate but you give choice they have the choice but you sort of know what's going to happen
1: so so a few things so first you're exactly right Um, when presented uh, uh, verbally or or, uh, through uh, hearing, people tend to have a recency effect. They pick the last one in the list because they can't remember the first or second. Uh, Sometimes when you give them a list or they're reading, people tend to have a primacy effect, the first one, um, because they pick the first one and nothing's then better than that, so they end up sticking with the first one. But I think that part, that point you said about sort of asking rather than telling is another strategy I talk a lot about when we think about resolving reactants, right? So I tell a story in the book of a boss who wants his employees to work late and work on the weekends, right? You tell people to work on the weekends, what are they going to say? No, right? I I don't want to do that. So instead, what he says is, hey, what kind of company do you want to be? A good company or a great company? What does everyone say? Oh, I want to be a great company. And he says, okay, well, what do we need to do to become a great company, right? And then they suggest things. And then when he does what they're suggesting, one of them says, hey, we, we need to put in more hours. He says, great idea. Let's do that. Now they've committed to the conclusion, right? They've put a stake in the ground saying, hey, I chose this. And because I chose it, I'm going to be much less likely to back away from it later. But again, notice what these strategies are doing. They're giving people some role in the process, right? You're not telling them what to do. You're allowing them to participate.
0: Right. And you're, and you're letting them feel part of, if, if the company does become great, they'll feel like they were a part of that journey and it makes them feel good. Now wh- what's the role of in- incentives in this? So why would they want it to be a great company versus a good company? Like if I'm just an employee someplace, maybe I don't care if something's a great company. I'm I hear perfectly you. happy with good.
1: Yeah. And, and by the way, we have to ask the right questions, right? So, um, if we ask a, a bad question, it's going to lead us in the wrong direction. But I think if I'm a startup founder, I know most of the people that are working in a startup want to be there and want to be a great company, right? And putting them in that situation, they're more likely to say they, they want to be a great company. And so just just like picking the choices, right? If I pick the wrong choices, it's not going to lead me where I want to go. It's picking questions and choices that guide that journey. I even think about this with the coronavirus, right? So people are trying to get young folks to social distance and young people saying, no, you know, I'm not a... Le- likely to be risk. I want to go out. I want to have a good time. If you say, hey, do this, they're going to say, no, don't tell me what to do. Just like young people have done for hundreds of years with public health campaigns, right? When you tell people not to smoke, it makes them more likely to smoke. So instead, point out sort of a gap between their attitudes and their actions, what I call highlighting a gap, right? So if you said, hey, don't ask ask them about them. Say, hey, for your younger brother and sister, your five-year-old younger brother and sister, or your aging grandparent, you know, would you suggest that they go out? And most people would say, well, no, I wouldn't suggest that other people do that. I want them to be safe. Great. Then why would you go out? And again, notice what I'm doing with that question there, right? I'm not telling them don't go out. I'm encouraging them to go, well, hey, wait, if I would say this for my grandparents or my younger brother, and then my own action disagrees with that, I've got to resolve that cognitive dissonance. And so it's setting up the right questions, the right options to encourage people to do the cognitive work rather than push them and get them to push back.
0: Yeah. And again, I wonder... Like, is there any role for incentives here? Like, so for instance, can I say to a kid, hey, here's $100 if you don't go out uh, today.
1: <laughs> I mean, sorry. You can either
0: have this $100 or you yeah. can go out.
1: Look, you know, if you give people a million dollars, they'll do almost anything. But once you stop I definitely them, would. They'll, they'll stop doing it. And most of us don't have a million dollars to change people's minds, right? And so I'm not, um, two things. One, I'm not against incentives but incentives tend not to work, and they tend to be really expensive, right? There's a lot of work on the sort of perverse effects of incentives. There's a lot of work, research on how long-term incentives tend not to work, and there tend to be better ways, right? I mean, that boss doesn't have to say, hey, if you don't work late, I'll fire you. He just has to get people to buy into the idea of being a great organization, and they'll, they'll be more likely to do it. And so I don't hate incentives, but to me, they're not the most effective approach.
0: It's also it's also important to have some sort of self awareness about yourself when doing this because, for instance, if you tell a kid don't do this and they say no, well, you feel like the power dynamic that exists between a parent and and a child yeah. uh, is is being broken. So when they were three years old, they always listened, and now that they're a teenager, they're not. So there's the, there's and this happens in a lot of situations: boss, employee, and 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 you know certain types of friendships and and other things. Whenever there's a hierarchy. You get angry, and so you say, no, you better well do this because I'm your parent and I'm saying it. So you kind of have to have self-awareness saying that, uh, that your, your goal is more important than your feelings in, in yeah, many cases.
1: but notice even what you just said, right? You have to do this because I'm your parent. Then the reason they're doing it is not because they want to do it, but it's because you made them do it, which means as soon as they don't have to listen to you anymore, they're not going to do it. Whereas if you get them to internalize it, they believe it's the right thing to do, they're much more likely to do it. Consistent with what we've been talking about, I tell this story in the book. There's this amazing campaign in Thailand uh, to get people to quit smoking. Uh, It's a Thai health promotion foundation. They want people to quit smoking. Uh, They tell people to quit smoking. They give them information. They're not listening. So they have this campaign where they show smokers on the street, um, and a little kid walks up to them. And the little kid asks them, can I have a light? The little kid has a cigarette and says, Can I have a light? And what's amazing, what you see is not surprising, all the smokers say, No, I'm not going to give you a light. No way. Don't you want to go run and play? Smoking is bad for you. You get emphysema. You get lug troubles. No one knows the risks of smoking more than smokers do. And so giving them information is not going to solve it. But by saying, hey, would you have a kid smoke? And then at the end of the interaction, the kid hands him a slip of paper that says, okay, well, if you wouldn't have me smoke, why are you smoking yourself? And it leads to a 40% increase in calls to this quit line because, again, it internalizes the behavior. You're not not smoking because I told you, the Surgeon General told you not to, right? Most people would say, oh, screw the Surgeon General. I don't care about the Surgeon General. You're not smoking because you've realized it's a bad idea. And so a lot of this idea about reducing reactants is getting people to internalize something by allowing them to make the decision.
0: So so I love this technique because uh, I have used it myself and I find it to be very <laughs> powerful in many situations. Like I've just given a couple examples, but this this works. Like giving the people around you um more more control or at least the feeling of more control, either one by the way, uh, if you do it correctly, is just such a powerful technique. And it also helps you guide your own feelings a little better. So you don't you, you don't feel so committed to them following exactly word for word what you say. You know, it becomes a more fluid situation. And 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 it's related to something you talk about. You know, there's a great quote I want to read in the book. Um I have a bookmarked uh this, this, this really sums up a lot of things. And this is by the way, occurring in society right now in a mass level, but here's your quote. Change almost always involves some degree of uncertainty is buying shoes online. A good idea. Will it give me my time and effort or be a bigger hassle, blah, blah, blah. And, And then I'm skipping a little people dislike uncertainty, not just a little like bad weather or spoiled milk or a host of other things. They find mildly uh, uh, I have to page or find mildly, uh, annoying. No people really dislike uncertainty. Uh, and you know, and it's interesting because the, mar- for instance, take the stock market, stock market's a great thermometer of, of uncertainty in the world. It's not, oh, yeah. it's not bad news or good news that makes the market go up or down. It's kind of the level of certainty or uncertainty. Oh, yeah. So for instance, right now, the market's down more than people think the economy will fall in part because we just don't know how long, there's uncertainty about coronavirus there's uncertainty about what level of restrictions are around there's uncertainty how the economy is going to survive there's uncertainty because many people including some people listening to this have lost their jobs so that uncertainty just makes you completely feel powerless and retreat into yourself and you know, the market collapses and everything kind of collapses in life. The more uncertainty you have, and you have good case studies of examples of this in, in academic studies, how have you used, used this or how can we use this to persuade?
1: Yeah, and by the way, I mean I experienced I was uh, you know finishing up writing the book and I experienced this myself where I was on a flight I was uh, the flight was delayed it kept getting delayed I was worried I would miss a meeting and what's the worst thing that can happen the worst thing that can happen is I'll miss the meeting right and so you would think anything is better than missing that meeting right uh, anything is better than missing the meeting but once I realized I was missing that meeting I actually felt better. I knew I was missing the meeting, but now I felt better because part of what I hated wasn't just the idea of missing the meeting, it's the uncertainty. Same with the stock market. right? It's not just that people are worried the market's going to go down. They don't know how far it's going to go down. And it's uncertainty that, that gets us. And so, One thing I talk a lot about in terms of resolving uncertainty is how can you allow people to experience the thing that you're hoping they'll do? Right, so, if you're selling a product or a service, um, part of it is you, know, you say it's going to be better, but of course you would say it's going to be better. You're selling it. right? How can you let them convince themselves that it's actually going to be better. So take a company like Dropbox, for example. Uh, Dropbox built a billion-dollar business uh, on giving away things for free, right? So um, big uh, online business where you store files. Uh, When they launched, they were having a lot of problems. Uh, People weren't used to storing their files in the cloud. They didn't know what the cloud was. Um, They didn't want to pay money not to have them on their desktop. So uh, they thought about buying ads. They thought about lowering the price. But it wouldn't solve the fundamental problem. People didn't know if they would like the service. So instead, they gave it away for free. They gave people two gigabytes of storage for free. Uh, And you might say, well, how can anyone build a billion dollar business off giving away things for free, right? Every kid with a lemonade stand knows you have to charge people. But what they did is they didn't just give it away for free, they used a business model that many of us are familiar with called freemium. Right, where you take a free version of a product uh, or a low-price version of a product, you give it away initially, and then you encourage people to upgrade to the premium one because it's not just consumers that like free stuff, right? Businesses love it as well because hey, by seeing that I use Dropbox and like Dropbox, now if I like it, I'm much more willing to pay that money to upgrade to the, the paid version. And so, lots of companies use freemium. You know, everybody from LinkedIn and Dropbox to the New York Times. Uh, you know, think about when you listen to Pandora. There's a free version, but You can pay to have the ads removed, but that principle is actually a lot broader. It's not just for software as a service and kind of online businesses. Think about test drives for a car, for example, right? A test drive isn't freemium. There's no free version of a car that they upgrade you to a premium one, but what it does is it lowers your uncertainty. Imagine you walked into a car dealership and you said, hey, I'd like to test drive this Acura, and they said, okay, give me $30,000 and I'll give you an Acura. We'd say, well, I don't know if it's any good. I'm not going to pay you before I know if it's any good. And so what lowering the barrier trial does, whether it's freemium, whether it's a test drive, whether it's renting rather than buying, whether it's free shipping for buying things on the internet, all it does is it lowers that risk. It lowers the amount of money. It lowers the amount of time or energy, the upfront cost, before people can experience the benefit. It lowers that uncertainty, makes them more willing to try something, and more likely to try means more likely to buy.
0: Right, it, re- it reduces this this friction uh, uh, about making a decision, and the friction could be could be huge or small, but it, re- it reduces it to almost nothing. Now, wh- what's another way other than freemium that you would suggest for reducing uncertainty?
1: Well, so I mean, test drives aren't freemium, right? Free shipping isn't freemium. Uh, free sample uh, in the grocery store of smoked sausage isn't freemium. But all well, of those well, things what, are. What, sort
0: well, yeah, all those are examples of reducing uh, upfront friction.
1: costs. Yeah. yeah, upfront costs. But you can think about the same thing with the back end. Right, so uh, think about making it reversible. Right. So think about what uh, free returns does. Think about a uh, money back guarantee does. It doesn't make the front end any cheaper, but it says, hey, if I don't like it, or even think about lawyers that say we only get paid if if you win. Right. It's basically saying, look, I'm going to move uncertainty by making you feel like if it doesn't work, I can give it back. Um, but there are even some great examples I, I share in the book about this idea of kind of driving discovery. So uh, let's go back to Acura for example. Right. Well, who test drives an Acura? Only people who know Acura exists as a brand um, and think they like an Acura. No one goes to the Acura dealership if they've never heard about Acura or they don't think they'd like the brand. And so, well, how can Acura appeal to the larger set of people that might like the brand uh, but not know about it? And So a few years ago, they were dealing with exactly this. People loved Acura who had tried Acura. There just weren't enough people like that. So what they did is they paired with W Hotels and they did something quite clever. They said, hey, staying at a W Hotel, you can get a ride anywhere in town in an Acura. You don't need to know Acura exists. You don't need to like Acura. All you need is a free ride, want to go somewhere in town and not want to have to pay for it, and we'll give you a free ride. Did everyone take a free ride? No, but tens of thousands of people did, and thousands of them ended up buying an Acura as a result because what it did is it brought the discovery, brought the trial to people, right? Rather than having to go to an Acura dealership to find out if you'd like it, it brought that trial to people.
0: A lot of people write me and I'm sure people write you. And and I've also been on the reverse side of this. When I've been younger, I would write to someone and say, or someone will write to me and say, Hey James, uh, if you need help with anything, let me know. I'd be happy to help you. So they're offering like this, this freemium of their services so that potentially they could get mentored. The problem is, is that the way they just put it, they just gave me a homework assignment. Like I now have to figure out something they can do to help me. (laughs) And, and, and I realized that early on when I was in their shoes doing the same thing and I realized it's good to offer something for free to do freemium, but it's even better to be as specific as possible as what you're offering. So it's not like the car dealership says, Hey, we have a bunch of cars. Why don't you come here and hang out and see what you want to do. They say specifically, (laughs) <laughs> you know, we do want to test drive an Acura and to your point, then it filters out the people who know that there's It filters in the people who, who knows what an Acura is and the value of, of test driving an Acura and so on. And so, so for me, instead of, I, I dropped the emails, I stopped sending emails like, Hey, I'd be happy to, uh, take you out for a cup of coffee, which nobody really needs. Uh, I would study their business enough and say, look, I can do this, this, and this for you. So very specific. And that tended to work better.
1: Yeah, and I think you know at the core, what this book is about is understanding your, and I'll fill in the blank, you can say customer, understanding your spouse, understanding your employees, whoever it is you want to change, you've got to start by understanding them. I think I really like the way you put it, right? If you're just offering some vague set of things, it's not clear to them what's valuable to them. If you've taken effort to figure out what they actually want and need, it's much more likely that they're going to want to work with you uh, in the future. I talked, um, I talked both to sort of leaders and salespeople for this book, but I also talked to some more unusual audiences. I talked to hostage negotiators and um, uh, you know, substance abuse counselors. And one thing a, a really great uh, hostage negotiator was talking about is, you know, look, great negotiators don't start with what they want. They start with the person they want to change. They don't start by saying, hey, you know, come out with your hands up or, hey, I want you to do X, Y, Z. They start by sort of figuring out what that person needs um, and then using that to help that person. So uh, I'll tell a story. It's a, not a sad story, but it's, it's not necessarily an upbeat story. But um, it's this uh, negotiator is talking to a guy who's thinking about killing himself. And so this guy is saying, hey, look, you know, I lost my job. I got to provide for my family. I don't have any money, but I've got this insurance policy. And, you know, if I kill myself, my family will get the insurance policy. I can relate to that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, Hopefully not too much relate to that. But, um, uh, you know, and it's a situation we hope we'd never be in. But, you know, the the negotiator comes in and he's dealing with this guy. And the challenge, right, is our gut reaction to that situation is to go straight to what we want to have happen. Which is we tell the guy, look, you know, if you kill yourself, actually this policy is not going to pay out because it's not. But if you tell him that, when he's in that state of mind, he might actually kill himself. So so that's not going to work. And so what negotiator does, he starts by saying, hey, you know, this is my name. How are you, you know, uh, how are you doing? Do you need anything? And the guy sort of says, oh, blah, blah, blah. They they start having a conversation. And he doesn't ask for anything. Negotiator doesn't ask, doesn't try to get the guy to do anything. He just starts asking questions to understand who the guy is and where he is. So he's like, hey, you know, why are you thinking about committing suicide? And the guy says, oh, you know, I lost my job. I've got this insurance policy. You know, I want to take my care. My family, and so you realize the guy cares about his family. So he says, "Oh, it sounds like you care a lot about your family." The guy says, "Yeah, you know, I've got these two boys. I'm trying to raise them to be, you know, good young men." He says, "Oh, it sounds like you care a lot about your boys. Tell me about them." And so the guy starts talking about his family. How he cares about his sons. I wants to raise them to be great young men, to take care of women, to care about the world, and all this other stuff. And so eventually, the conversation winds around. And the negotiator goes and says, "Okay, well, you know, if, if you kill yourself today, your sons will have lost the best friend they've ever had." And, and just feel that from my, I've told that story a couple times now and every time I tell it, I get the chills, right? Because think about what he did. He didn't say, hey, you know, uh, do what I want. And he didn't say, hey, how can I help you, right? He said, hey, let me ask some questions to figure out what you want and then use what you want to help me figure out how to get us to a good place together. And that's what I think great change agents do.
0: So, so in, terms of, in terms of this, this part of, um you know, this is kind of in the, um, uncertainty part of your, of your framework. Uh, what he's doing in the sense is, uh, creating more certainty around other topics than just providing dollars to his children. There's also these other features that he wasn't thinking about. He's kind of sort of turning a light on, you know, a, 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 dusty attic that might be dark in the person's head where he was only focused on money, but, oh, there's this other thing here in the attic, which is this, you know, love for your kids and, and friendship with your kids. And, and he uses that to, to highlight there's more certainty yeah. there's more complexity and certainty in the person's relationship. Or am am I curve fitting here?
1: It's a little bit curve fitting. I wouldn't say this is uncertainty. I think this is a little bit under reactance, but also under the broader point of understanding your your audience, right? If if you're a doctor, you know, uh, and someone comes into your office, you don't say, uh, let me, uh, you know, let me put a splint on your finger. You first figure out what the problem is. Right? You know, if you're weeding a garden and you just take the top off the weeds, they grow back. Right? The only way to solve the weed problem is to dig out the weeds and get, get rid of the root. And I think that's the same when whether we're a doctor, whether we're a mechanic, whether we're trying to change our spouse's mind, we've got to find that root. We've got to figure out, like, what is that thing that's behind why people aren't willing to change in that, you know, situation with the guy who's thinking about committing suicide? It's okay, you know, what does he really care about? He doesn't actually want to kill himself. He wants to protect his family. If that's really what he cares about, let me show him that what I want to help him do is actually consistent with what he wants. It's, it's really about understanding our audience. And I think whether you're a comedian trying to figure out what jokes to tell or whether you're trying to get your spouse to do something in particular, the more we understand our audience, the better we can get them to come around our side.
0: This reminds me of of, uh something I often say to my kids actually, which is that um for for everything they do, uh, and pretty much this applies to everyone, there's always a good reason and then there's the real reason. So (laughs) if my if my daughter wants to go to the library and I say, why are you going? and she says, well, I want to study for my homework, that's a really good reason. I can't argue with it. But the real reason might be there's a lot of boys at the library and she wants to hang out with, you know, the, the boys in her grade. And and so uh, what you're saying is kind of always ask yourself, okay, they're giving a really good reason. And this person wants to kill himself because he's unhappy, but what's the, and he wants his life insurance, but what's, what's the, what are the deeper reasons? How can we flesh out our own understanding of this situation? And when we understand the real reason and we're able to address that, it's much more important than addressing simply a good reason. That's sort of the front reason.
1: Yeah, you know, I was I was working with a client a couple of years ago. It's like a B two B consulting uh, uh, project, and you know, helping them out with with their software. and And uh, they were talking a lot about, oh, people aren't buying our product. And I said, well, why? And they said, oh, well, you know, we don't actually know. And what we started doing is sort of putting together a customer journey and understanding what those barriers might be. Maybe they're not very buying the thing because they're not aware it exists. Maybe they're aware that it exists, but they don't think it'll work for them. Maybe they think it'll work for them, but they don't think they have a problem. Maybe they, you know, think they have a problem, but they think it's too expensive. Maybe they don't think it's too expensive, but they, um, you know, don't think it'll integrate with their existing systems. It's a little bit like if you give a mouse a cookie, that old children's book, um, but, you know, more in a business sort of customer journey situation, but I think that way of thinking, that way of thinking like, hey, well, you know, why isn't that person doing what I want them to do? Ask Understanding what it is, what's preventing them, and in some sense helping them do what we both want to do in the first place, right? I want to get them to this end state. They're not against it, but there's some things in their way. If I can help get rid of those things, they'll be happy to go there. And so how can I help them get there?
0: And so how how did it go with that in
1: that case? It went went quite well. I mean, they put together a customer success team. And what they started doing is both segmenting their clients to figure out which of the barriers were happening to which clients and then creating resources to solve those different problems, right? If it's a cost issue, then freemium is going to be really helpful. If it's an integration issue, then it's actually not money at all. Let's create a team that goes in and says, hey, we'll solve the integration challenges for you. That's really useful for one set of clients, not useful for another. Same with a doctor, right? That splint is really useful if you have a sprained finger, not so useful if, you know, you, know, you need heart surgery and so doing that diagnostic and figuring out what the barriers are in the first place is the first step to removing them
0: you know it's very interesting because there's a lot of theories about what's a good business idea and often people think that you know they might have a they might understand what a customer's needs are and make a product for it and the customer might, might even agree yeah if you make this product i'll buy it but that but the customer themselves might not even know what their real business need is. And so often, you know, business models are different than what you expect. Like it's Google, uh, a search engine, or is it actually an entertainment company? The business model turns out to be more like an entertainment company is McDonald's a fast food chain or is it a real estate, uh, company? Because it turns out they have properties in all the best locations in the world. So, so, you know, understanding these things helps you, um, come up with better business models as well. So, so on your model, so, the, so we've, we've, we've talked about reactants, we've talked about uncertainty. Um, how about in endowment? Cause this, this is an yeah, important sure. issue too. Like, and I'll, I'll, I'll just tell what one example, like I didn't want my oldest daughter to go to college, but in, in your, um, reactants, part that we've already talked about. If I were to just say, you're not going to college. College is bad for X, Y, Z reasons. She I literally would just turn around and walk away
1: <laughs> and, <laughs> and go and, directly to college.
0: Yeah. And, and she did uh, go directly to college. It, 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 I had to kind of like go to a different time frame, but eventually my, my, my goal was, okay, if she just lives by my, if she just sees my example and my actions and the actions of the people I associate with, she could start to She'll see and without me telling her. And then eventually after her second year, she, she dropped out. So I was very happy. But, um, <laughs> but, but I, think, I think it's related to this endowment thing. People are attached to the status quo. All her friends were going to college. All, all the guidance counselors said, go to college. All, all, everybody was saying, you'd be crazy if you didn't go to college.
1: You know, to me, endowment is the very, some uncertainties about new things, right? People tend to be neophobic. We're scared of new products and services, new ideas, new ways of doing things. Um, endowment's about what we're doing already. It's our attachment to the past. Um, It's kind of the fact that we don't move from things we're doing already. So, you know, research shows that the longer you've lived in your home, the more you value it above market price, right? You've lived there, you become attached to it. Um, There's research on the endowment effect that says, hey, you know, we like products and services and ideas um, that we already have, we value them more than ones we don't. So if we have tickets to something, we value those tickets more than if we're buying tickets to that thing. Um, uh, in, in the case of, you know, there's a famous study with a mug where they give some people a mug and they say, how much would you take to uh, have someone buy it from you? What's the lowest you'd be willing to accept? And they ask other people, hey, you're buying a mug, um, this mug, how much would you be willing to pay for it? It's the same mug, so whether you have it or not shouldn't change your valuation of the mug. But what they find is in general we tend to be attached to things we're already doing. How do we solve that? And one and people, one way to deal with that is to make people realize that sort of the status quo isn't safe. We feel like new things are risky. Sticking with old things is safer. Uh, but sometimes inaction is actually much more costly than we might think. Um, I share a story in the book. I was talking to a cousin of mine who every time they wrote an email would write at the bottom regards Charles. They would sort of sign their email name and whatever the salutation is at the bottom of the email every single time. And I was sitting there going, well, that takes a lot of time. Uh, you know, why don't you stop doing that and just automate your signature? He was going, no, you know, it only takes a couple seconds, and I don't know how to automate my signature, and so it'll take longer to figure out how to automate my signature than it will do just to keep signing my note this way. Um, and indeed, this actually relies on some old research about injuries. When you ask people, hey, what's a bigger deal, a minor injury or a major injury? You know, you you break your kneecap or you break your finger versus you sprain your finger, you sprain your kneecap, and we have this notion that major Major injuries are worse, they cause more pain, but that's not actually right because if an injury is really bad, we go ahead and we fix it, right? We go to the doctor's office, we get medication, we uh, get physical therapy, and so the injury gets solved. If the injury is not that bad, we never do the work to fix it. It's never above the threshold. We never do the work. And so it ends up causing us a lot more pain uh, overall. And so to get people to change, we have to realize, hey, doing nothing actually isn't costless. We've got to raise that threshold. And so I did the same thing with my cousin. I said, okay, well, how long does it take you to write an email? And he said, you know, only three seconds to write the thing at the bottom of the email and not enough time to invest in in email signatures. I said, okay, how many emails do you write every day? He said, I don't know, 50 emails. Okay, how many emails do you write a week? I don't know, know, 400 emails. I said, okay, well, if it takes three seconds or five seconds every email, how much time are you spending every week writing email signatures? And he thinks about it for a moment and then he opens up a window and Google and types in, you know, how to automate your email signature. Because each one of those individual things, yeah, it's not very expensive. It's not very costly in terms of time. It's a minor injury, not a major one. It's not worth doing all the work to get it fixed. But added up over time, you sure that minor injury doesn't feel like a lot? Each time isn't that painful? But integrated across time, it actually causes you a lot of pain. And so to get people to overcome that endowment effect, we have to make them realize, hey, it's not cheap doing nothing. Yes, it might seem like inaction is costless, but it's not.
0: Well, also, it's you're you're reframing the the problem in a way where it becomes more clear the solution. I, I think it was Tim Ferriss was was talking about this, where you know sometimes people say, oh, well, my dad's 65 years old. You know, he's probably gonna live another 15 years. I have 15 years to call him and talk to him and, and see him and say hi to him. And, but then if you put it in a different context, like, oh, I usually just see my parents on Thanksgiving, that might be only 15 more times left I'm going to see my parents and that reframes it in a different way. Instead of 15 years now, it might be only a few hours left of time that you'll have a direct conversation with your dad and that reframes the problem completely to, to avoid, uh, uh, to, to kind of take you out of the status quo and, and, and put you in a new world.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think you're exactly right. And the question is, what's the right way to reframe it. And in this case, the way is to show people that inaction isn't, isn't costless, right? Yes. Individual times might feel costless, but aggregated across all of them, it's actually much more costly than they might think.
0: Right. And then, you know, I'll I'll ask one more, more question is, um, you know, Right now we have this very polarized country. It's this herd behavior. Either you're either a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're either for this person or and then you hate that person and you hate all other people who like that person and, and vice versa. And statistically, and also let's say the Democrats and Republicans, they each have 20 issues that they feel strongly about. Statistically, it would be impossible for every Republican to feel the same way about all 20 issues, and every Democrat to feel the same way about all 20 issues. And yet they do because of this massive herd behavior and also kind of this feeling you're going to be an outcast if you agree disagree with any one of the 20 behaviors of Republicans or Democrats or whatever. Like on some issues, I might be Republican, so I might be Democrat, but you're not allowed to do that anymore. So how would you persuade someone there, like, hey, just because your pro choice doesn't mean you can't do this or that you know be favor of lower taxes or whatever you know how how do you get people out of the menu the the herd yeah. menu mentality
1: yeah, so I talk a lot about politics in the in the distance chapter yes. because, you know, essentially politics is like a football field, right? Democrats are on one end. Republicans are on the other. People are arrayed along that field. But when we ask people to switch parties, we're asking them to move very far, right? We're asking them to go from the 20-yard line of one side of the field to the 20-yard line of the other side of the field. It's a lot of movement, um, and that often falls in the region of rejection. There's a lot of research that shows that, hey, you know, people might be willing, anywhere they are on the field, they might be willing to consider information or opinions. They're kind of five or maybe even 10 yards in either direction from where they are. But if you ask them to move too far, it falls in the region of rejection and they ignore it. There's a really nice study recently that came out of Duke that um, shows on Twitter when you give people information about the opposing political party, the hope was that would make people more moderate, right? I'd get a chance to see where other people are coming from, they'd be willing to listen and, and you know, move towards the middle, had the opposing effect. Right? When you see information from the other side, it makes you even more convinced your beliefs are right. And so as you're saying kind of how do we solve this, I talk about a few ways in the book. Um, one is what I call asking for less, right? Really rather than saying, hey, you know, I want you to make this big change, chunk that change or break it down into smaller chunks. I tell a story of a, a doctor that was trying to get uh, a truck driver to lose weight. So this obese guy drinking three liters of Mountain Dew a day. You know, the, the tendency there is to say, stop drinking Mountain Dew, right? But to somebody who's drinking three liters a day, that's a big ask. That's very far from where they are currently. And so it says what she does, she says, hey, uh, drink two liters instead of three. He grumbles, doesn't want to do it, but eventually is able to do it. Then she says, okay, drink one instead of two. Uh, grumbles, doesn't want to do it, eventually does it. Then she says, okay, drink zero instead of one. And so eventually she gets him moving all the way down, not just by asking for less, but asking for less and then asking for more, or in some sense, kind of chunking the change right? Breaking a big change down into smaller chunks or what I call stepping stones, making people easier to ford that big river from one side to the other with a smaller set of steps. So that's, that's one way. Uh,
0: so that, that reminds me of uh, BJ Fogg's tiny habits, for instance. So if he wants to get you to start flossing your teeth, sometimes that's a big ask for people. Uh, but if uh, he says, just floss one tooth for a month, uh, get used to it and get used to setting that aside that time for that habit, uh, then people are more likely to start flossing.
1: Yeah, and so what I think both of those do is it says, hey, look, if I ask you to do that big thing first, it's too overwhelming. It's like a river. I say, hey, forward a river. It's like, God, I'm not going to forward that river. It's too big. I might get wet. It's not going to work. So instead it says, hey, you know, what product designers often do is say, hey, you know, here's some stepping stones. Uh, we, I did a project a couple of years ago with Facebook where we were introducing a new hardware project. And they said, hey, this new product is too different from what people are used to. Let's introduce a couple of intermediary products that move them in that direction. So eventually in a few years, it won't seem like such a big ass to do this new thing and so people got people more comfortable with doing something that might have seemed big initially but now it doesn't
0: well uh, there's there's so many good stories and advice and again we we covered a lot of it uh, uh, or we covered we we covered at least the main points of the, of your framework <laughs> but but there's a lot more in here um i just want to read the framework again uh, it's called reduce is the name of the framework it's an acronym for reactance endowment distance uncertainty and corroborating evidence. We didn't talk much about corroborating evidence, but there's some good stories and that, that is what it sounds like. And, um, but all the stories in this are excellent and it's really good. This is a very, this is probably, again, the one, the most valuable skills you can learn, which is the ability to both understand yourself and others enough that you can figure out how to essentially create these catalysts that change people's minds. And the book's called the catalyst subtitles, how to change anyone's mind author is. Jonah Berger, who's written uh, other great books, *Invisible Influence* and *Contagion*. You've been on your po- the podcast for those. Uh, you're a professor at University of Pennsylvania. Jonah, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. It's a great book, and uh, well, thanks so much. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna write about it. also. I'm gonna write about this di- discussion we've had. It's 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 such for me. This is like one of the most interesting topics, like persuasion and influence, and and in practice as opposed to academia. So, and I, I love the practical approach in this book.
1: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me, and I I hope you enjoy the rest of the book.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot, Jonah. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block.